afternoon and welcome to an informed live radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager. In the Pacific Northwest here, we've got a, a rainy day, which I welcome. I love this time of year. I'm ready to start making some homemade soups and stews and bread and I, I find this weather very cozy, but it is also a season when we need to be prepared. Uh, hopefully everybody's got all their vitamin D on board to get us into the fall and winter season. Um, we've got an awful lot going on right now. Some of it is very good and some of it is very concerning. So I'm going to start this show as I have done for the past couple of weeks with some information everybody needs to know. The current variants uh, of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that are circulating out there tend to replicate very fast, very quickly to very high numbers. And a even those people who you know have researched the um, the home treatments and the various nutrient and drug protocols that they can use for home treatment for early treatment are finding themselves unprepared and because it can take some time days if not longer to access the um, and, and get a hold of some of the elements of the protocol you will need for early home treatment to prevent severe disease people are finding themselves in some trouble and some ending up in the hospital. And we do not want this to happen. So I am encouraging each and every one of you to do two things, to prepare your at-home COVID kit. And that's the information I will be playing for you right now. And this is not the be-all end-all of COVID kits either. There are a lot of treatments out there that are accessible for the individual to have at home that will um, help protect you, help um, keep you from developing severe disease. And this isn't Bernadette giving medical advice. I'm passing on what I learn from the experts. So number one, prepare your, prepare your COVID kit now for you and your family before you are sick. Do it today. Begin today. Number two, begin today shopping for a healthcare practitioner aligned with your approach to medical care. Shop as if you're shopping for a spouse. Interview them. Make sure you are philosophically aligned. Make sure they will support you through any illness um, and, and be there. That professional advice and support, especially when you really start you know, dealing with things that can be um, a little bit scary, you don't want to be on your own. You want that professional, but it's going to take some time for you to find that naturopath or medical doctor or osteopath who can guide you um, as needed. So start today. Um, and with that said, I'm going to go ahead and play for you. Let's see, let me get this going here. This fantastic presentation by the FLCCC. These are the founding physicians of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. They convened to develop highly effective treatment protocols to prevent the transmission of COVID-19 and to improve the outcomes for patients ill with the disease. Today, they want you to know how to prevent COVID-19, even against the variants. This is the molecule of ivermectin, 
the medicine that can end the pandemic. Ivermectin was discovered and developed in 1975 in Japan by Dr. Satoshi Amura and Dr. William Campbell. In 2015, Drs. Amura and Campbell each received the Nobel Prize in Medicine for Ivermectin's discovery. They deserved it. The medicine has brought relief and saved the lives of millions across the globe for nearly 40 years. Ivermectin was first used in humans in 1987 for the treatment of parasitic diseases. It has eradicated pandemics of numerous diseases for four decades. Plus, for nearly 40 years, it has been given safely across the world nearly four billion times. Ivermectin is on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. It has been deemed to be one of the safest medicines known to mankind. But this workhorse of a drug is not yet finished. In the past eight months, numerous controlled clinical trials are reporting consistent, large improvements in COVID-19 patient outcomes when treated with ivermectin. People treated with ivermectin experience numerous clinical benefits. Fewer infections, reduced inflammatory markers, more rapid improvement, more rapid viral clearance, shorter hospitalization, and a reduction in mortality. As you can see, ivermectin has been very well studied across the world. In fact, the amount of scientific medical evidence is mountainous. As of July 16, 2021, 60 clinical studies, including 30 randomized controlled trials, have evaluated the role of ivermectin in the treatment or prevention of COVID-19. Here's how it works. Ivermectin inhibits the replication of many viruses, including SARS-CoV-2, influenza, and others. Ivermectin has potent anti-inflammatory properties with multiple mechanisms of action. Ivermectin diminishes viral load and protects against organ damage in animal models of SARS-CoV-2 infection. It prevents transmission of COVID-19 when taken either pre- or post-exposure. It hastens recovery and decreases hospitalization and mortality in patients with COVID-19 and it leads to far lower case fatality rates in regions with widespread use. Then, when ivermectin is used with the additional components in the FLCCC Alliance's iMask Plus protocol, it can work even better in preventing COVID-19. So here is what the FLCCC Critical Care Physician Team recommends. Just like you keep a first aid kit around the house, please start keeping a just-in-case COVID kit. Here is what the kit contains. Ivermectin, vitamin D3, vitamin C, quercetin, zinc, melatonin, and gargle or mouthwash. You can find our iMask Plus protocol 
plus all of our prevention and treatment protocols at flccc.net. We wish you a lifetime of good health. So those are the wonderful folks at FLCCC, and they are top pulmonary care specialists working in ICUs, working in hospitals, um, staying up to date as the variants move in, reaching for the shelf um, to bring more uh, elements to their protocol, changing things up to stay on top of things. And at their website, the COVID-19criticalcare.com, you can find their most up-to-date information with dosages and what to do. <clears throat> and they have different stages. They have uh, preventative protocols, um, early at-home treatment protocols, and that's what this kit is all about. It's designed to catch things early to stop the progression so you don't end up with severe disease. And there's also hospitalization protocols um, if needed that you can provide to a hospital if they allow. Of course, what's happening in many states today criminally is the prevention of the use of ivermectin and these protocols. Meanwhile, more and more countries are including ivermectin and vitamin D and quercetin and other things in their standard of care. So it's absolutely absurd that we, they can't do it here. It can still be got, it's a lot of hard work. So start today working to fill your COVID kit and to find a practitioner to help you on this journey, okay? Um, and with that said, I'm gonna bring on our guest today. Our guest name is Mark Thielman. And he's a superintendent of a public school in Oregon. I've had him on before. A little disclaimer here. He is running for a public office in Oregon, but his coming on this show is not an endorsement of, of what he's running for. Um, Informed Choice Washington and Children's Health Defense who helped sponsor the show. Um, we do not get involved in endorsing candidates at all, but I'm bringing him on because of his information and insights and action of what he's doing in Oregon, which is very similar to other states like Washington, where there's mandates happening coming from the state. And it's his activism and insight into this and his recommendations to people to try to help them that I, I invited him to come on the show today for. So hi, Mark. Hi, thanks for having me. I thank you for the moments, last moments, moments notice, I'll get that out, for coming on the show. Um, since we last spoke, the seemingly impossible has happened. We've not only had these mandates coming from our governors to the citizens, but now we've had the president of the United States issuing similar commandments from on high. I thought we lived in a free republic, but apparently they didn't get the memo. <laughs> um, did you ever think that this would happen, that it would get this bad? No, I don't think anybody could have expected it to get this bad, but at the same time, um, you could see the trend. And, um, and then with the uh, uh, unfortunate circumstances in Afghanistan, regardless of where you're at, it's always bad when Americans are left behind. And, and um, obviously, people are uh, still in the newsreel. Um, in, in the world of politics, which I have some connection to as a policymaker and here in Oregon for 10 years, um, 
distractions can be a very important thing. And that there's nothing more distracting than telling people, if you don't do what we say, uh, regardless of the science, regardless of the data, we don't want to hear your argument. We're in charge. Mm-hmm. We're going to make it illegal for you to work or so inconvenient for you to work um, that you'll choose to uh, not work in a public agency or work for a large company. And you'll be forced to be relegated uh, to it as a second class citizen or, or have to do your own gig kind of um, um, job to support yourself. And it's it's completely and utterly un-American. But I think, I, you know, and I don't mean to take liberty here, but as a school superintendent on the cutting edge, so I kept my school open all last year. We had no cases of COVID tied to the school, but the rules were very different. First of all, most schools were closed. So if I ended up closing for a few days or, or, or quarantining third grade for three days, um, I didn't have to bear a huge political cost to that because parents were so grateful we were open. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened is this, the state came in now and said, even though this is a more contagious virus um, and, it, and it acts differently, we're going to force schools to stay open because that's our mandate. You must stay open for in-person education, uh, but be ready for CDL, which nobody really is ready for. And, um, and then that was bad enough because people are expecting last year's rules, but they're very different. And this year, unless you're sim- if you're symptomatic, unless you're symptomatic, you get to come to school, whether you're vaxxed or unvaxxed. And um, even if contact tracing, et cetera, if you're vaccinated and you're contact traced and you're called a close contact under the rules that they set in Oregon, you get to come to school, either a student or a staff, as long as you're not symptomatic. Well, the problem with that was, you know, my school was a victim of that um, and um, had a, a unvaccinated coach. She ended up getting COVID. She rode on the bus next to um, Next to the uh, vaccinated coach, they sat seat seat. They were masked, and the unvaccinated one infected the vaccinated one. And he has been sick for almost three weeks now, long COVID kind of situation. But because uh, the rules said he could still come to work and he was vaccinated, he did so. And then, sure enough, two days later, he was tested positive with COVID, and it created a huge, huge, uh, you know, backlash and a wave of concern for parents that was not conducive to good business, in my opinion. Um, so at that point, I just took it matters into my own hands. And I said, enough's enough. We're going to break ranks with some of this really crappy guidance, and we're going to make up our own rules. Uh, so I worked with our local health authority to do that. So uh, first of all, we're not going to treat vaccinated and unvaccinated different. And, and I'll see, we, we, we no longer do that. Um, if you're close contact, vaxxed or unvaxxed, you do your 14-day quarantine, which the county requires. But if you have an unvaxxed sibling, unlike everywhere else in Oregon, you're, that unvaxxed sibling uh, doesn't get to come back to school, but the vaxxed ones do, because they have to do a second 14-day quarantine, which is absolutely insane. Nobody's been able to explain the epidemiology of that, especially when we have all these rapid tests now. They have so to do 28 is, um, days? 28 days. 24 to 24 to 28 days, depending on when they, they cite your uh, infectious time for the infected case in your household. Well, that's really hard on families. Parents need to work. So if you're a parent, you're told you can't work for 24 to 28 days, and not everybody has that kind of sick leave or that option. So what I told families was, hey, we got these new things called tests, and they're very accurate, and they're very quick. Plus, we're having quick turnaround with PCR tests now, unlike last year, because you know we built the capacity for quick testing and quick 
lab turnaround. So what I tell parents is um, everybody does the 14 days. After that, everybody goes back to work if they test negative or come back to school if they test negative. Now, what I've done for for the folks that, you know, drink the Kool-Aid on the other side, because there's Kool-Aid drinking everywhere in this circumstance, is the other people come and say, well, Mark, you're putting my kids at risk. No, I'm not. Because communicable disease policies in, in Oregon schools allow me as the chief designee, the superintendent, health practitioner, et cetera, as long as I take steps to make sure that that kid during the second quarantine is tested every morning before they uh, enter the classroom. And if they test negative, they get to come to school. Because if you don't, if you test negative, you are not contagious. That is a fact. It's on the CDC. What sort of tests are you talking about that are accurate? Well, these are the, the rapid Binex tests, and uh, they're very simple, kind of like a pregnancy test, really. And you don't have to do the deep swab. You just swab up kind of up into this area of your nose. And uh, it's very simple. Um, students and, and parents can administer their own test. Um, and the school in, in Oregon, um, we were given a shipment of them from the Oregon Health Authority. And uh, I'm now on a regular uh, uh, resupply. And um, when my daughter... Um, started manifesting symptoms from COVID, I, I tested these tests on her and they worked. They worked beautifully. She was positive. I was negative. Of course, I had her isolated out in the trailer and she had the best 14 days of her life <laughs> living on her own. She was sick for a whole 12 hours and, uh, and, yeah. and I, it was like a mild cold. But, um, mm -hmm. And that's because we took your advice. We didn't have ivermectin, unfortunately, but we had everything else. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the gargle and the vitamin D. And my daughter, man, I couldn't believe it. You would not have known she was sick if the test yeah. didn't come back. Yeah. And yeah, let's pause just a minute and, and talk just a second about gargling because um, I keep saying this, I need to make a full web page about the gargle, that the science is so astounding how something as simple as gargling and gargling and a saline flush with the right product, it, it kills the virus where it grows and replicates in the up, you know, in your mouth and nose and everything. In the if you start this in the very beginning, it just makes so much sense. And Listerine, they say gargle for about sixty seconds with Listerine. The nasal flush, you're going to want to make like something with a Lugol's iodine solution type yep. um, product. Iodine in studies has been shown to kill the SARS-CoV-2 virus in fifteen seconds. Yep. So if you just do that regular cleansing of, in fact, I remember at the very beginning of all this, there's, uh, I can't remember the nation, there was a particular um, nation in the Far East had very, very low rates and, and almost no hospitalizations. And it turns out that it was a culture, I remember, that regularly does saline flushes. It's like they brush their teeth, they rinse their nose with a saline solution, as just like Americans brush your teeth, wash your face. But they have that extra step as part of their cultural hygiene. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's very possible that that is one of the reasons they kept it down. If you get it out of the place where you are exposed to it, where it sets up house, <laughs> there yep. you go. And the science is pretty strong on it, but you're not hearing anybody talk about it, except for now the FLCCC that's so fantastic. They've added it to their COVID kit. It's something so simple and something so safe that you can do to um, protect yourself. So, you know... Those of us who are very concerned about the dangerous vaccines out there um, and putting out the science and the concerns and the reports of injury, 
and um, covering all that, we nevertheless do not want anybody unprepared, mm -hmm. unprepared to deal with COVID if exposed to it. And we don't want anybody spreading it to anyone who does not want to catch it, <laughs> right? Um, that is rude. Isolation is the kindest thing that you, you know, you want responsible thing that you will want to do. But now your, your daughter, because you were prepared with nutrient protocols and you isolated her, your daughter safely experienced wild infection. And now she's got very strong, vigorous immunity. According to all the latest studies, she is even immune to about 24 variants, including the Delta variant. Yep. And the vaccinated people are not the vaccinated yep. people are it's like that that your bus story. So if I got this right, you had two teachers, one yep. unvaccinated, the other vaccinated and the both wearing, masks. both wearing masks. Masks are useless. We know that the science shows that. But still, you know, you're trying to keep your school open. So, you know, you're keeping them maybe a giant sneeze, but it's not yep. going to stop virus particles. So the. Um, the unvaccinated person gets COVID, the vaccinated person exposed to it. And because of the ridiculous regulations that don't respect the actual um, capabilities of the vaccines, that vaccinated but symptomatic COVID patient is allowed to go to school and infect more people? Uh, as what? long as they're not, yeah, as long as they're not symptomatic. And here's okay. the thing is my, uh, the, 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 one was the head coach, the other was the assistant. They're both great people, by the way. I'm not judging. Yeah. Nobody's done anything wrong. People get no, COVID. They're just following the, the darn rules. <laughs> the vaccinated coach was allowed to continue working because the rules at the time were if you're vaccinated and symptom-free, even if you've been exposed, you can come to work. So my daughter sat next to the coach after the uh, two days later on the Thursday game, and, and she received COVID from a vaccinated person. There I want to say that again. My daughter received COVID from a vaccinated person yeah. and the the uh the the comedy of it is can you still see me here i hang on i gotta i've got all this stuff yeah. going on here so um, you know if you want to go ahead and shut off your camera just so we can hear your voice at the, the reception might be better oh there we're back okay okay we're back but i'll shut it off just in case so i hope you can hear me <laughs> um there's all kinds of yeah the, it's in and out with the wind out down here um okay. listen um so the thing is uh for me, the the issue is, it, you know, I don't care if my daughter gets it from a vaccinated or unvaccinated, but don't go out and say that the vaccinated must be protected from the unvaccinated when in my own life experience in front of my own eyes affecting my own children and my own household in my own school with employees and students I care deeply about and support, my daughter got COVID from a vaccinated person. So how do we explain this? We ought to tell people the truth that when Joe Biden, and I can't call him my president, he, and here's why, I, I never heard his speech. I missed it, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm running for governor, I missed Joe Biden's speech. But I started getting emails and one phone call from uh, some of my parents who legitimately worried because of the president's speech, they wanted to know, because I'm considered a COVID expert in, in, in our region of the state, so a lot of people will call me. One family was not one of my families. They were in the neighboring district, but, but they were connected to the other two that called me. They wanted me to give them advice on how they could protect themselves from their unvaccinated children. And 
Um, no, this, this is in, and I was like, where's this coming from? So I ended up looking up the president's speech and I watched it on YouTube. And in my opinion, President Biden has disqualified himself for leadership as our nation's leader. Any public official who teaches or, or spins a narrative that says to parents, you must see your children as a threat to your health and safety mm-hmm. is not a full moral caring human being. Now, that's my opinion. Yeah. But, and but well, not just shocked. not just your non-vaccinated children, but 80 plus million other Americans who are doing their medical due diligence. You know, mm-hmm. um, you were responsible when your daughter got COVID. You took responsible action. Your daughter was a threat to nobody. And he's and the the very absurd fact that a president is saying we have to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated. Well, why on God's green earth did are you promoting a vaccine that does not prevent people from getting sick? Why are not just promoting, but requiring? It makes zero sense. Nothing is making sense. And then he threatened governors of this state. To me, he committed treason. He just he just put out open threats against elected officials who are following um, and doing what the majority constituents in his in, in their states want. These elected officials, you know, are supporting medical freedom and informed consent. He said that he would get them out of the way. I mean, yep. that's threatening our very republic, the, the very nation on which we are founded, separation of powers, separation of our, our country was set up this way in order to prevent tyranny. We don't have a king. We don't have a monarchy. We don't have, you know, what are the other names of the types of government that it seems like? But of course we know, <laughs> yeah. And but what's even more frightening, Mark, if we can even go there and I have before, so why not go there again is. Joe Biden isn't speaking on his own. He's not saying he he can barely read from the teleprompter. At what stage is it officially acknowledged that he is not fit for office? He can't get through a single sentence without mispronouncing something. And they had to cut off his mic the other day because they feared he was going to go so far off script. They didn't know what he was going to say. That cannot be the leader of this country. Yeah, It's, it's concerning. It is shocking to the conscience, and, and he's being exploited. If, if that's true, he's being exploited, and it, and it just shows you the moral bankruptcy of the people behind the president mm-hmm. and uh, convincing him in, in his current state uh, that, that these ideas are valid and good. Yeah. And, and it, it's insane. The same president who speaks in, in, with great emotion and empathy about the loss of his son, who died mm-hmm. of cancer and served this country, Mm-hmm. who speaks in terms of his support for the, his other son, who's still alive and is obviously a controversial character and loses a lot of laptops. So, <laughs> so, so here's a man who speaks with empathy and love for his children mm-hmm. and then literally <laughs> impugns the opposite yes. uh, uh, regarding the, the, the threat of unvaccinated children, in, in children who maybe even can't be vaccinated because they're under the age of 12. And so one of the things I told all three sets of parents is I told them the truth. Um, your children are more at risk from the you as adults, even with your vaccinated status uh, for getting COVID than the other way around. And that you should have no fear 
And then I did the same thing you just did is I said, set up a COVID kit if you're worried. And I even included one more thing because uh, one particular household had some uh, kind of family asthma. And I said, if you have a lung condition where you're susceptible to chest colds or you have asthma or emphysema or COPD, you should also have an oxygen meter. You can order them online through Amazon, a blood pressure cuff, and, and also add a baby aspirin after consulting with your primary care physician because that's baby aspirin has been shown to reduce the blood clotting, the micro blood clotting that creates some of the cytokine storm that's mm-hmm. causing a lot of the hospitalization. Yeah. Vitamin, D, vitamin D helps uh, alleviate that as well. And naturally zinc slows viral uh, replication along with vitamin C. And so these are simple easy, no harm things that every, um, every uh, household can have in their possession that will greatly advantage their, um, or shorten their uh, um, illness time and greatly reduce the likelihood that they will be uh, uh, hospitalized. Yes, exactly. They need to be prepared. Um, you know, go to the experts, find out dosages, uh, how much you need, because if you do become symptomatic, you do need to know the right amounts to take to truly address it. And I like to give the analogy of, you know, um, getting sick is a little bit bit like taking a, a car drive on a long trip, like up a mountain, you might start off with optimal levels of oil and gas and water and the radiator, but you're going to be burning those up as you go up the mountain. It's the same with your D, C, zinc and nutrients and your glutathione and, um, and everything. And if you aren't stopping regularly to put more gas in the tank and maybe top off that radiator, um, you know, you're not going to make it to the mountaintop or you're going to be huffing and puffing and wheezing by the time you get there and be in maybe critical condition. So, the beauty of COVID is, is it's very been, been very frustrating that we haven't been able to turn to our medical establishment because they are not supporting early treatment. You get nothing. You get nothing from your traditional medicine, um, Western allopathy, um, most doctors. There are some brilliant ones like the FLCCC doctors, America's frontline mm-hmm. doctors. There are some brilliant ones speaking up. But on the whole, you go to your regular MD, they're not going to give you any good advice on how to fully support your immune system through an illness. So the beauty of COVID is everybody is learning what it is, what viral, what happens to your body, what nutrients you need. We're having to be self-empowered. We're having to treat ourselves. And again, you know, Mark and Bernadette are not giving medical advice. We're giving you suggestions, which we And we want to put you out there, go explore, um, go to the informedchoicewa.org website, go to healthyimmunitynow.org, go to flccc.net, um, you know, go explore all of the information out there and be prepared. We always need to be prepared and self-reliant. And um, I can't stress that enough. I have um, a very dear person that I know that is in the hospital now. And it's just, it just breaks your heart when they did not start the protocols that they knew about and believed in on day one, because they were not prepared. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's so. the beauty of it is, uh, you know, a lot of times the, the virus, if you get it bad in the lungs and, and everybody's different, but it tends to deaden the nerves. You see, that's the same reason you lose smell. And uh, this has been shown. And so that's where the oxygen meter can give you early warning that maybe your lung efficiency due to inflammation is down. 
And the baby aspirin can stop some of the uh, micro blood clots that tend to affect the alveoli or alveoli, depending on tomato, tomato. Yeah. And, and again, if you in the, what I like about that is, okay, I'm going to call my primary care physician. I'm going to ask about the vitamins and baby aspirin. I'm going to put my kit together. I'm going to ask for a prescription of ivermectin mm-hmm. as a prophylactic. Um, and what it does is it brings your primary care physician. If, if they're commensurate with your values, like you were saying mm-hmm. into the team. Yes. And what happens is, is you're more inclined in that relationship to call your doctor on as soon as you're diagnosed with COVID. Yeah. All the doctor, bring them, bring your doctor into your situation, whether you eventually need them or not. And they can also be, help you be proactive. Um, and that's where, uh, um, you know, we need to empower all families to take their health and their safety uh, into their own hands. There's uh, what I explained to my parents is this. I sent out an email that said first line of defense is prevention. So those are all the, the uh, hand washing, the mitigation protocols, the vitamins, the the, the home kit, the gargling. Yep. The gargling. Then there's potential exposure and or symptoms. That's mm-hmm. isolation. Then we should automatically isolate three to five days mm-hmm. and then, and, and seek testing after three days, or if you're symptomatic. And then if you get a confirmed case, you kick into the next phase. And that is you contact your primary care uh, provider. You, you maintain your vitamin D and your, your, uh, your immune building things you monitor your symptoms and at the but, first sign of any you know you you monitor your oxygen stats at the first sign that that things might look like you're under 90 percent with your oxygen stats you get into the hospital early and guarantee and you know and if that's the case 99.98 percent of the time you will walk out of the hospital within 24 hours well and mark so, I, I i would just adjust that a bit to say that the first day you experience any symptoms, whether you're tested or not, whether you get a positive test or not, you start the full protocol because by day four, the replication rate is already too high. You need to start day one. And these protocols will help with no matter what is causing your symptoms. That's the beauty of these nutrient repurposed drugs. They're, they're broadly effective against any virus. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, you're not going to do harm. You're only going to help yourself, whether it's COVID or flu or something else. So, but you need to start right away. It, it, this, the new variants begin replicating very yep. quickly. And that well, and, is, and let me, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I didn't mean if I did, if I wasn't clear, I'm going to, I'm going to absolutely reiterate that. I agree at first sign of exposure, or if you think you might been exposed or even intermittently exposed, basically you want to you want to stay on your vitamins and your zinc on a regular basis. And then you can ramp it up if you think you've been exposed. That's yes. what we did with my daughter. Yes. As soon as she had a potential exposure, we ramped up vitamin D, zinc, and vitamin C. Yeah. Um, when she ended up coming down with uh, symptoms, it was uh, three days later. Started with a headache <laughs> and a lethargy and then eventually a little bit of a sniffle. And um, she literally said, Dad, I've had colds much worse than this. She was um, negative within four days of, of full symptoms. She had 12 hours where she said she said she could honestly be- believably say she had a cold. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you, know, these young, mm-hmm. you know, these young people are amazing. But um, yeah. I attribute her rapid uh, defeating of COVID to, to that protocol. And the best yes. thing is, as a parent, and I'm just going to tell every parent this, as a father who loves his kids, it was so nice having something I could do. Yeah rather than having to wait and rely on a medical system that, that may or may not serve, serve us. Exactly. 
Yeah. And, you know, I hate to, to, I love this subject and I'm so glad we gave it so much time because nothing is more important now than preparing people. But I do want to move on. There's two specific points that you discuss um, on your website that are really important. So let's talk about in Oregon, some, some language that's concerning where they're using the word ex, um, exception instead of exemption. And then I also want to talk about strategies um, that you are suggesting for helping try to bring about informed consent with your employer. But let's start with the word exemption versus exception that is happening in Oregon. What's going on with that? So what they did is they brought superintendents and other, you know, uh, department county officials into a big meeting and they they gave us embargoed slides and under great threat that these slides will not be leaked to the media i don't know how they got leaked i don't know something about taking pictures of the screen and um so the the thing for me is if if they don't want me to share something something's up so i paid very close attention and they in the original slides it was exemption that was the term used it's a legal term Exemption is a legally um, identified in, um, term that when they use it in law, it says if you are exempt from a requirement, aka a COVID vaccine requirement, it's as if you are vaccinated and you none of your rights and freedoms can be infringed and no extra demands can be made upon you if you're exempt. So they started out with exemption and then they, they realized, hey, wait a minute, we're, uh, we're not going to be able to treat exempted employees differently from um, vaccinated employees. So what they did is they switched the term and it's another legal term called an exception. Now, if I'm in court and I disagree with the judge's ruling, I can write an exception opinion and have it submitted in the public record. It's called an objection. Everyone knows about objections, overruled or sustained. So what they did is they produced forms and then they required all employers to use the Oregon Health Authority form and they took out the word exemption and they use the word exception, but the media continued to cover it or use the term exemption. So everybody filled these forms out in the early days of this situation, in particular healthcare workers. And they turned them in and, they, and uh, the employers accepted them, but they never gave confirmation to the employee that they received them, another no-no, because there's no place on the OHA form in Oregon where the employer has to sign or acknowledge that that the exception is either accepted or exists. And then they told employees, we, we recognize your exceptions. Here's your walk-in papers. You're now on leave without pay. And um, you can use up your PTO time. After that, you are dismissed. Now, people came back and said, hey, wait a minute, I turned in an exemption. And then they were hit with a lower legal standard. So an exception doesn't mean anything. It provides very little, if any, protection. And it allows, it's that you're now at the sole discretion of your employer, whether they choose to let you keep working or not. See how this works? So the federal government's out of it. OHA can't be sued because they're not enforcing anything. OHA on its own form said, do not return this to the Oregon Health Authority. Now, what sense does that make? I mean, I'll ask you that. It, well, you know, I, I've heard it said that that when what is happening makes no sense you look at what what is happening the results of it yep. to find the real meaning of why they're doing it because it's very clear 
that nothing that they're doing is actually protecting individual and public health. It's not based on fact, rules, regulations. It's not based on anything. But the result is people being fired, people being confused, disruption to society, people fearful of their livelihood, and um, and it's setting up a, a two-tiered society with those who agree to be injected allowed freedom and those who aren't agreeing not. Yes. That's, so the, the goal seems to be compliance and not protection. Well, now, here in Washington yeah. State, they didn't use that. I'm going I'm to explore later on. I'm going to see if that word exception was used instead of exemption. But, you know, even with the word exemption, um, people are being let go. They said, oh, well, we accepted your exemption, but we cannot accommodate you because we cannot yeah. make your job safer because you work with the public. Therefore, you're still fired or um, mm -hmm. we are like suspending you without pay or like not yeah. directly firing them. They're doing something. It, it, it's the same result. So on the very exception form that OHA produced, mm -hmm. they, they wrote an, what's called an undue burden clause that said, please are, are consenting to or submitting this exception. By submitting this exception, you agree that your employer may uh, take action to protect other workers from you as an unvaccinated person. Uh, um, and they may, um, uh, uh, it may affect your employment status uh, as you may present an undue burden or safety risk. So they've now declared you and you've agreed to being declared a safety risk. So here's the example though of the incompetence of the people running Oregon State. Kate Brown, Dr. Seidlinger from OHA in particular. By the way, Kate Brown and Dr. Jay Ensley are good friends, but Jay Ensley did not have the same courage because I'm thinking he might think he might want to still have a political life post uh, this next gubernatorial term and Kate Brown has other plans. So she said, okay, I'll be the one to push the envelope. And so what I did is I took the, I downloaded the OHA forms because I have to send them out to my employees, which I'll be doing on Monday. And then I uh, noticed that they were not secured, which is insane for a government agency to send a PDF out to every employer in Oregon, public and private, and not lock the document so it couldn't be edited. Mm. So I reworded it. I took out all the words exception. <laughs> I rewrote the undue burden clause for the religious exemption side to say that your employer must treat you as an equal employee um, uh, even if it means or creates an undue burden for the employer. So I took it 180 degrees. <laughs> I love it. And I will be sending that out to all my employees. And I've already been very clear to my school board and my staff, we are not going to divide based on vaccine status. We were all here last year, most of us unvaccinated, and we didn't do this to each other. And when people began to be vaccinated, we didn't stigmatize and say, you're bad or you're smart or you're not. We talked about it's everyone's choice mm -hmm. and we supported each other. It's mm -hmm. medical freedom. So if you're vaccinated, great. You exercised your medical freedom. If you're unvaccinated, great. You exercised your medical freedom. Good for you. Everyone understands the risks mm -hmm. both in, on, on all sides of the issue. And, and I believe in all my employees ability to monitor uh, and make decisions for themselves. And so the thing is, um, you know, I just sat with a panel of attorneys um, over lunch just yesterday, and they thought I was half crazy. And I explained to them, I'm allowed to do to go above and beyond 
in terms of my restrictions mm -hmm. uh, to state policy. So if they have a lower bar of exception, I'm allowed to, to set a higher bar for my staff, to which the attorneys begrudgingly agree. So the thing is, I'm gonna do this. I, I uh, encourage everyone to do the same. You can literally take a pencil in Oregon and take scratch out the word exception and rewrite it. And when and the thing is your employer, then you, you want to require your employer to send you an email or give you a written verification of receipt of your exception or exemption form. And then if they try to lay you off, especially if they don't read the form carefully, which is, has already happened six times, that's why I love my forms. I leaked these to other people, by the way, before I sent them out to my staff, because uh, other agencies were, were forcing people out sooner than, than we have to. We have to we have till the 18th. And it was so satisfying. I think we're up to the sixth medical worker who said, uh-uh, I turned in an exemption form. And guess what? They're still working. Wow. It's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. Um, yeah, I, you know, I just like almost have no words for the deceptive things they're doing. Our, our own Governor Inslee worked with his attorney advisor to try to draft for state employees religious exemptions so narrow. They, if you took so much as an aspirin as an adult, you were disqualified from a religious exemption because, because what? I, you know, I mean, it, it has nothing to do with what religious freedom means in this country. Um, I did not know that that Governor Ensley was such an expert in the way that, yeah. that baffles me. I think he is right there with President Biden in terms of his qualifications for leadership. Hi, Governor Ensley. I hope you listen to this podcast. I used to live in Washington and thank God I'm not there anymore after hearing what I just heard about that guy. No one, yeah. no one on this earth is qualified to judge the depths of another person's heart or soul. No. That is not our place. No. We have court systems that, that try to do that and it should be left to those systems. And that, really, that just, yeah, religious freedom is about your personally held religious belief. And if you are an individual who walks a path in life where you examine very carefully what your actions are to be, and you believe receiving any of these injections is wrong, that it's potentially harmful, and it violates your sense of, of right and wrong, of sin and a, and a good life to, to allow coercion to make you choose something you know to be wrong. That's your personally held religious belief. And by gum, nobody can undermine that. I, most religions on this planet say that intentional self-harm um, is a sin, is wrong, is, you know, a violation of life, you know, and, and it can be backed up by any number of religious texts, but it, it, that doesn't even matter. It's in your heart and soul. Yes. And, um, and that is what religious freedom is all about. And again, you and I have been talking about very responsible actions in order to prevent severe disease and to prevent the spread of disease to those who do not want to catch it because yep. this can be very serious. We, you know, our approach is what many nations are now deciding, gosh, that's what we should have done all along. Yes. Early treatment, 
and natural immunity are the solutions. The, the vaccines we are learning now, they wane within six weeks. Yep. How many boosters are these? And you know, like the pertussis vaccine, um, whooping cough, it has been learned that the current pertussis vaccine, if the first time you're exposed to whooping cough, it permanently skews your immune system. Um, toward the wrong reaction. You know, our immune systems are always learning and being trained how to behave. Mm -hmm. And if your first exposure is to this vaccine, well, you, you don't have a full immune response that properly sets up long-lasting immunity. Now, it's a bacterial infection. It's usually not lifetime anyway, but natural immunity can be str quite strong and long-lasting to pertussis. But the vaccine immunity wanes if it works for you in about 18 months, but it never prevents infection, transmission, colonization, any of that, okay? Um, and it's so very limited personal protection, but that part about it skewing your immune system so you never are able to develop immunity to pertussis is, is really concerning. Well, what we don't know about these COVID shots is, are they skewing your immune system so that you never will be able in the future to develop really good, vi vigorous, lifelong immunity like those with natural immunity have? In fact, there's a new study that seems to indicate that if you had natural immunity and you got bullied into getting a COVID shot anyway, that your, your immune, your antibodies are now being undermined. It seems to be erasing some aspect of your very vigorous natural immunity. What? I mean, none of this has been studied properly. They're pushing things that they don't know anything about. And if you dare to question or criticize or bring up um, science they find inconvenient, they call it, a, they call it misinformation. Yeah. Well, let, me, uh, let me spread some if, you, if I can take a, just another minute. Yes, uh, yes. That subject, because you brought up a really good point. So um, in the Oregon Public Broadcasting NPR station yesterday. Mm -hmm. They had a, a, a article that was sent out to all school districts. It was a press release and, um, and it was kind of comprehensive, but one of my favorite lines in it is the, uh, the expert reporter declared that it, the, the scientific consensus is that these are perhaps the most effective vaccines ever developed. Oh, good grief. Yeah. Now, this is what she said. And so what was a riot is, is I was, I, I kind of guffawed. I went, what? So let me explain to the audience how scientists, real scientists define an effective vaccine. One is it has a very low um, uh, adverse reaction rate. Okay. And um, um, it, it, it also, am I back? Did I lose you there? No, Sorry. I'm here. Okay. Oh, yeah, it has a very low adverse reaction rate which means very, very few side effects. The lower the adverse reaction rate to taking the vaccine, the more successful in that category they would consider it. These vaccines have an extremely high adverse reaction rate. And that could be you know, something as mild as a really sore arm, like COVID arm, or as you know, death. Yeah. Um, generally, um, the death rate as an adversarial uh, aspect has to be very, very low. And none of these vaccines have met that threshold for what you would call a successful vaccine. Mm -hmm. The other one too, is it has to stop um, manifestation of sickness. And these mm -hmm. vaccines are not stopping the manifestation of sickness nope. because they, you can still get it and you can still give it. Mm -hmm. Now, 
it does seem to have some efficacy in certain age groups versus versus unvaccinated against the disease. And if that was the case, unvaccinated, we, but we have to yeah. clarify unvaccinated, but um, not with wild immunity. Exactly. And with or, comorbidities, yeah. Yeah. there are some there are some populations where the science, the data right now says that it might be worth the risks for them to have it versus risking getting the disease. Well, that's what we should have been doing all along. We do that with the shingles vaccine. If you're over 65 and you, you get bad outbreaks of shingles, they recommend the vaccine because it will reduce your outbreaks of shingles, which can be very painful. But they don't give shingles vaccine to everyone under the sun because and that wouldn't make any sense. No, and actually the new shingles vaccine, that's a whole other program. The adverse reaction rate is really frightening. So let's- well, that's, yeah. And again, that's another reason why they don't give it to everybody. I appreciate yeah. you saying- But you so can sue over that one because it's just an adult one. It's not under the 1986 act and the lawsuits are, are piling up, yeah. And so the, the point I'm trying to make is, is that the media is trying to spin a narrative that's completely unscientific. You have mm -hmm. to tell people the truth. You want mm -hmm. to tell people the reality of, these, of the situation. And mm -hmm. you shouldn't declare a vaccine that's so controversial that, that has, has such waning efficacy. Oh, you can't Mark, I agree with you. I hear the music. I want you to tell people your website where they can go get these strategies. Tell them quick and then we okay. got to go. So it's it's Mark for Oregon, M-A-R-C for F-O-R Oregon.com. And just click on that. There's lots of information, including informed consent. Yeah, go to the blog and then you're going to learn some information you need to um, communicate with your employer. So you've been listening to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back. Thanks, Bernadette. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Yep, great work. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy. But we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com. 
Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. Welcome back to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager. And this hour, we have a very important topic. I'm going to pull up some information here to lead into it. Um, and it's not pulling up quickly in my computer, but that's okay. So uh, we have talked about several times on this show and had some um, great guests on talking about the need for a grand jury to look into the approach to COVID-19 by the CDC. Um, They have been accused by several of fraud and malfeasance for their approach. Some of the uh, some of the steps, such as um, changing how death certificates uh, are to be filled out, uh, the recording of death. There's just been so many the the use of flawed PCR testing. There have been many things done. Um, that have really skewed the data in a way that has not been beneficial to public health, let's put it that way. And now um, I'm very pleased to announce that two Oregon senators have filed a petition at the federal level to get that grand jury going. So I'm going to be, I do have a guest this hour. We're having a little bit of trouble connecting. Um, So I'm going to bring her on after a video that I'm going to be sharing with you, a very important video that will kind of go over um, exactly what it is that I'm talking about. So I'm going to get that started for you all right now. I am here today with breaking news. My name is Leah Wilson, executive director and co-founder of Stand for Health Freedom. And I'm joined today by two Oregon state senators, Kim Thatcher and Dennis Linthicum, along with Dr. Henry Ely, who is the lead author of a groundbreaking peer-reviewed paper on the CDC's willful misconduct during COVID, which you can find for yourself on standforhealthfreedom.com under CDC investigation. There's also other detailed evidentiary materials available for you there. To give um, you a little bit of reference point in February of 2021, Stanford Health Freedom launched a public petition to call for US attorneys to convene grand jury investigations regarding the CDC's response to COVID-19. We did this because there were some astounding revelations concerning federal law violations and data accuracy issues with COVID-19 death certificates. So we have an update for you on that. 
on the public petition and to ask you to join our call for this investigation today. So please understand it is not too late for you to add your name to the petition right there on stanforhealthfreedom.com under CDC investigation, because friends, it is more important now than ever on the heels of the White House calling for illegal, unnecessary, and unethical medical mandate policies across the U.S. So take time, just the 30 seconds that it requires to join the tens of thousands of Americans calling for a formal investigation into the alleged violations of federal law that caused hyperinflation of COVID cases, hospitalizations, and recorded death counts. All of these hyperinflations have paved the way for massive collateral damage and destruction that American families and our economy have endured now for 19 months. So without further ado, I want to thank you, Senators and Dr. Henry Ely, for joining me today. All right, thanks for having us. Dr. Ely, we'll start with you. You have been championing this call for the grand jury investigation um, with your team's findings for more than a year now. So why a grand jury? It's such a foreign concept to most people listening right now. Can you share with us why you chose that route? Absolutely, Leah. And I, I think what's so important for uh, people to understand is that we have grand juries in every state, in every U.S. Um, district, and they have immense powers that most grand jurors don't even realize they have. Chapter 18 of the United States Code, uh, Section 3332, Powers and Duties, states very clearly, and I'm going to quote directly, it shall be the duty of each such grand jury impaneled within any judicial district to inquire into offenses against the criminal laws of the United States alleged to have been committed within that district. Such alleged offenses may be brought to the attention of the grand jury by the court or by any attorney appearing on behalf of the United States for the presentation of evidence. Any such attorney receiving information concerning such an alleged offense from any other person shall, if requested by such other person, inform the grand jury of such alleged offense. The identity of such other person and such attorney's action or recommendation. Now, what's very interesting about this is we uh, had our paper peer reviewed by um, nine attorneys, a judge. We went through a very thorough, the most thorough peer review process I've ever gone through. And it and we survived, the paper survived peer review. The USA Today even tried to discredit the paper that we published and they were unable to do so. So what we did uh, last year was we put on, uh, and I reached into my own pockets and we sent a copy of this along with a preliminary uh, petition to grand juries to every single United States attorney in the country. And we heard nothing back. Okay, this was a tremendous expense, tremendous painstaking endeavor, and we got not one response. So it was really very fortunate when we were able to meet Senator Linthicum and Senator Thatcher, and they were very concerned about what was going on in the state of Oregon. And we said, well, hey, we have something that we would love to share with you. Would you be interested? And both of them were gracious enough to listen to us, which I think is a very big deal to do their own research, <laughs> to do their own research and to verify what we said. And that's when we got together and said, well, if we can't get any response, 
perhaps both of you can. And they were just truly great and brave to, to, to take the steps that they've done to this point. Yes, Dr. Ely, your team went to painstaking um, lengths to verify that these significant questions about the CDC breaking federal laws do in fact exist. You know, starting in March of 2020, seeing willful misconduct and then the FDA's willful misconduct and surviving the peer review, strenuous peer review of professionals, lawyers, judges, or one judge, um, I want to bring attention to where the paper was published in its title, just for reference for our audience. It is titled COVID-19 Data Collection Comorbidity in Federal Law, a Historical Retrospective, and it was published in the journal Science, Public Health Policy, and the Law. So can you please give all of us an overview of what you have found and how your team was able to put this puzzle together? Absolutely. And, and there's a lot to unpack here. So we're going to do our best to keep it condensed for the audience. But there's a lot here. And we encourage everyone to read the paper, to understand and orient themselves to what we're saying, and to verify what we're saying. I mean, we've had a lot of verification, but you have the right to verify it as well. Last year, when this started, I wanted to do the best I, job I could as a doctor to inform my patients what to expect. Everybody was very scared. So what we started looking at was data from Italy and South Korea and modeling it to see what was the rise and, and the drop in cases, hospitalizations, and deaths on a daily basis. And we saw a very typical bell-shaped curve in both of them, and it, it was about a 40-day, 50-day uh, um, length. And we, used to, we said, okay, that's going to be what it's going to be for the United States pretty much as well. And we saw for the first 30 days or so that same kind of curve being formed on all three levels. But then on April 14th, something dramatic changed the case curve started to rise again. And we had never seen this in any other country at this point. So that was a big concern. So we looked in and said, well, why did that happen? And we found out that the CDC had modified what constituted a case. We found that the CDC had done that without alerting the federal government that they were doing it and going through the legal processes that they are required to go through to report to the federal register and initiate oversight and here's very important, Leah, open up public comment. These changes cannot just be instituted without public comment and federal oversight by the Office of Management and Budget, but yet the CDC did this. We then went back a little bit into March, and in March 24th, we found out that they had done this same process for death certificate reporting. And they had severely modified how death certificates were going to be reported, but only for COVID not across the board. And that is a blatant manipulation of data that led to an extraordinary hyperinflation of death counts. So much so that we've seen in Alameda County, California and in um, Santa Clara County, California, they did a soft audit earlier this year to remove the obvious things that should have never been counted as COVID deaths. And they reduced their COVID death counts by 22 and 25% respectively. And that's, that is published. So we were right on target that we knew that this change was going to dramatically inflate, hyperinflate death counts and create the situation where it looks like an emergency when we in potentially it's really not. So we published this paper in October of last year. It gets a lot of attention thanks to some uh, really great people on our team. And what we found were three important laws were violated. The Information Quality Act, the Paperwork Reduction Act, and the Administrative Procedures Act. 
And what we found with those three was that the CDC manipulated the data to, and of course, these are allegations, I want to be clear with that, but that the CDC manipulated, that broke federal law to manipulate and hyperinflate cases, hospitalizations, and fatalities related to COVID, that they did not notify the Office of Management and Budget that they were going to make these changes to how things would be reported. So there was no federal oversight of this process. And they did not open up a 60-day mandatory public comment window so that scientists like myself can go in and say, hey, this is the problem with your proposed change. They violated all of that. And in doing so, it led to a significant defrauding of the American people in our opinion. Now, I'd like to share with your audience a couple of important points on this timeline so that they can kind of orient themselves. And we have this entire timeline laid out in more detail in the paper. In 2014, Dr. Anthony Fauci authorizes uh, $3.7 million of scientific funding to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And that's through the National Institute of, uh, for Aller Allergy and Infectious Disease, the institute, the federal agency that he presides over. And it's specifically in, it's specifically, this is in the languaging for work on, this is a quote, for work on gain of function research on bat coronaviruses. This was reported and referenced by Newsweek. That's where we first were alerted to this. On 2019, five years later, Dr. Anthony Fauci does the same thing again, $3.7 million funded specifically to Peter Daszak's Echo Health Alliance through the NIAID. And this is quoting a second phase of the project, again, for gain of function research on bat coronaviruses. This was further um, supported by a recent uh, Freedom of Information Act request that ICANN, Dr. Uh, excuse me, uh, Dell Bigtree's organization put in with Aaron Siri, and they got a 900 page release that confirmed this exact thing. This is why Senator Rand Paul is right over target on this, that Anthony Fauci has lied to Congress and broken the law in doing so. We support that opinion 100% based upon our research as well, our peer-reviewed research as well. Well, what came of this in the timeline was that on October 18th, 2019, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security hosts Event 201, which is a high-level pandemic exercise to make sure all of these tools for assessing what's going on and reporting how many cases and hospitalizations and deaths is working. On November 17th, not coincidentally, <clears throat> China, September 17th, 2019, China records its first known case of COVID-19. January 21st, 2020, the CDC in the United States confirms the first case of COVID in, uh, in our country. Well, the important point with all this is that this, this is a very curious timeline uh, of events, that one thing happens and it seems to be like if this is serendipitous, if this is coincidental, these timelines wouldn't match up so quickly. So just it's food for thought at that point. So we delved into the federal register and we, because the way a federal agency is going to alert the um, federal government that it needs oversight for a proposed change and open up public comment is to put a notification into the federal register saying, hey, we want to do this. We want to make this change. And as soon as they do that, two important things are done. You've honored the Information Quality Act and you've honored the Paperwork Reduction Act and 
you've honored the Administrative Procedures Act. You're in compliance with the law at that point. Now the Office of Management and Budget will come in and say, great, we are going to have oversight over this. We're going to make sure what you're doing is above board. There's transparency created. And we're going to open up a 60-day mandatory window for public comment. And it's the responsibility of the agency to listen to the public comment and act accordingly. So my team went and looked through the entire Federal Register for these proposed changes and notification that the CDC was supposed to give. There was not one notification of it. Now, we did find notifications for changing um, small data in smokers and diabetics. So it's not like the CDC isn't aware of this. We found over 16,000 instances where the CDC had reported to the Federal Register to make small data changes in things that we're doing, but not one change for the two biggest things that occurred during this crisis, manipulation of cases and hospitalizations and manipulations of death certificates. Not one report in, so that's a clear violation in our opinion. When we go a little bit further through this timeline, <clears throat> we see that um, a little bit later on, as we get into June and July of last year, that the CDC starts changing their test-based versus symptom-based strategies and things like this. Again, no report of these changes to the Federal Register. So again, no oversight. What I'm summarizing here for everyone is that, in our opinion, the CDC has violated multiple federal laws to hyperinflate the data. And when we couple that with the reality that hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and things like that have been politicized, rather than looking objectively at the data, we see evidence of willful misconduct. What constitutes willful misconduct? Withholding evidence-based treatments from Americans in need. This is all based upon the fallout from the Tuskegee experiment. Again, what constitutes an act of willful misconduct? Withholding evidence-based treatments from people in need. And that we can prove that that has happened to 332 million Americans. So the long and short of it, uh, Leah, is that major problems uh, we have we have major problems in front of us, but we have major major problems because key federal agencies have violated the law. Major problems that have affected every single one of you listening and your children, potentially your grandchildren, if we do not insist upon accountability and transparency. So Dr. Henry Ely and his team submitted this information that you just heard to every U.S. attorney across the U.S. and received no response. And that's when we set out to gather the, gather signatures to show the overwhelming desire from Americans for transparency and for these three laws and questions to be investigated. This happened without public comment, friends. There must be transparency, even greater transparency in a time of emergency when we are on the cusp of history-making moves such as the ones that we're talking about. So Senator Thatcher, when did you realize that something was not right with the CDC's COVID response that was trickling down into your state and into the local health departments and that you needed to do something on behalf of your voters? Well, I think it started right about the beginning when we, we had a 14 day flatten the curve time. And after that time, it seemed like there was more data coming in and we could have maybe started loosening up uh, restrictions a little bit simply because 
there was a high survivability rate it, that that was i think published at that time so it seemed really curious that they doubled down and uh continued the lockdowns and made them even worse and worse so that businesses couldn't earn money who would have thought that a year and a half ago you would get a fine for serving food in your restaurant who would have thought that you would be getting a fine for letting somebody into your store to buy something they really needed it's just it's just unbelievable what is happening and <clears throat> yet costco walmart all those big box stores they could remain open and they could sell the same goods that these small mom and pops were selling um but they were the mom and pops were considered non-essential businesses and i i just been making the argument that every business is essential because somebody's livelihood depends on it uh people purchase these products because they need them well, why does the business exist unless it's you know providing something some people need and you know not only that but as we were getting more data such as higher homicide rate higher suicide rate uh more domestic violence child abuse people not seeking medical treatment and being able to get uh, uh, preventable situations with their health being taken care of because either they were scared to death to seek it or they'd been shut out because uh, services were severely limited. So then I you know, just began to really question whether the cure was worth worse than the disease, the cure that the government came up with to help uh, you know, flatten the curve and deal with all this whether that actually created more harm than good. And so just started wanting to look into it and uh, get some questions answered there. Yes, and what you're saying about the high survivability is something that still many people do not understand because it's not the story that's being told. And we see, you know, we have had enough of businesses being closed. We've had enough of being labeled non-essential, especially when we know that there's a readily identifiable group of people that we need to be protecting, you know, so um, I appreciate you stepping out and protecting those that vote for you and the whole American public as you um, make waves on this issue. So Senator Linthicum, when did you recognize that you had to do something because things were not quite right with the response to COVID? Thank you. Uh, it, it, very similar to Senator Thatcher, um, uh, the item that caught my eye first was the incessant case counts. Um, I've actually been on the Oregon Legislative Health Committee for a number of years, and um, so I'm familiar with flu season numbers in annual uh, what we call ILIs or influenza-like illnesses, and um, and this, you know, led me to recognize there was confusion or inaccuracies or kind of uh, manipulation of ILI versus flu versus COVID and trying to figure out what was what in this bag of uh, data that we were getting. Uh, it didn't take long to actually see that the data was being scrubbed or sculpted to fit a narrative. Uh, basically, the fear-mongering, the daily uh, chirons running across your newscast hour that was telling you case counts for this city or that city or New York or Los Angeles. And I'm in an area uh, with very low population density, rural Oregon, and yet they're, they're making the claim that the flu, if you walk outside, the COVID is going to kill you, not the flu, but the COVID is going to kill you. And there's this 
this crazy fear mongering that um, took the public by surprise and the elites in political office weren't willing to ask the tough questions. What about this or what about that or whatever? Um, so as I became of, um, aware of Dr. Ely's data and the information and publication that his research team provided, it was a perfect opportunity for both Kim and I to team up together. Senator Thatcher and I could take this information, this data, and the grand jury process and create a legal judicial um, onslaught that we could submit to the grand jury and request a investigation at the grand jury level. It's it is extremely important and powerful tool. And um, as Kim mentioned, everybody across the U.S. can uh, mimic this or um, tune it to their own advantage. Yes, that's great. I want to acknowledge both of you for stepping out when it's very unpopular in an elected position right now to do so. You mentioned the elites in elected office and that we cannot depend on them to right this ship, to demand the transparency that we need, to demand the accuracy and data that each and every one of us need. So I want to just thank you and acknowledge that uh, you referenced the case counts being something that really tipped you off Senator Linthicum, and I've heard Dr. Scott Jensen say that the severity of any infectious disease, any infectious disease, the severity of it is measured by death rate, period. And here we are in America right now with the distraction of cases. So thank you guys so much right. for doing this. Is there anything else that either one of you would want to say about the grand jury route and why you saw that as the real opportunity for the American public to demand this sort of transparency. I, I can the, jump uh, in here. Well, okay, yeah, right. yeah, both of us could. <laughs> well, Go ahead, uh, Kenley, first. I, I had actually been thinking, okay, so people keep saying, well, why don't you sue? Why don't you have a law case? Why, why, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Well, in Oregon, it's very tough to win uh, anything in court without it being eventually overturned by the Supreme Court, because our governor who was making all these edicts, she has appointed five of the seven judges. So that's a really tough route to go. So I was just looking for something. So this uh, approach of a grand jury investigation or petition to have a grand jury investigation seemed like a very good route to go. And submitting this information like we did to a US attorney, Scott Aspog, and I may be saying his name incorrectly, but his last name is spelled A-S-P-H-A-U-G, um, down in Medford as a, a US attorney who would be able to convene a, gr a grand jury so that they could investigate and look at some of these allegations that have been brought up and some of this information and the facts that have been laid forth. Uh, you know, put forward. So it just seemed like an answer to prayer for me to get involved in something that I thought could at least start the ball rolling, whether or not this actually uh, results in a grand jury investigation, you know, we don't know. Uh, but at least we have a template and it's ready to go for anybody across the nation to perfect it even better, make it even better and uh, submit this information to their local U.S. attorney, the, the U.S. attorneys in their state or the one that I don't know how many state gets, but anyway, that it just, it, we laid forth a process that I think that'll make it very effective eventually, hopefully sooner than later.
Yes, Senator Linthicum. Thank you. Um, Kim, uh, Senator Thatcher laid it out nicely. I was a part of two different um, lawsuits in the state of Oregon. Uh, the first one was on religious liberty because the governor had an executive order that said uh, congregational church settings were verboten. And then the next, uh, since that expired after 60 days, uh, the court threw ours out because it was no longer in effect and there's no sense in having a challenge against something that's not in effect. But the second um, uh, executive order came along and was uh, a the same kind of structure. It just didn't include religious liberty because it wasn't focused on congregational church settings. So we filed a second lawsuit and we highlighted the unconstitutional nature of her uh, actions. She was taking over the, uh, the facilities that are accorded in our constitution to the legislative body. And she was now a super legislator, if you will. And so we made that challenge. And as Senator Thatcher uh, highlighted, the court threw that out. We don't have su sufficient standing. So this grand jury is a perfect opportunity to pick up anybody can do it, any senator or representative within any jurisdictional domain can submit this. Um, individual citizens can do it as well. We have not only the points we've been discussing with regard to case counts, but we also have five other key issues that are highlighted in our documents and they can add six, seven and eight or just strip it down to one, two and three. Um, and so as uh, Senator Thatcher said, this is a great template to use and get going. That's great. And the encouraging news is that the people who have signed this petition, that signature matters because now those signatures carry weight and especially when you amass many of them, because our strength as citizens is in our numbers. And so Senator, Senator Linthicum and Thatcher have taken those signatures, put them with the petition and petition and said, here is what we need from you as U.S. attorneys to convene a grand jury. So do you have any update, Senator Linthicum, on the status of where Senator Thatcher, I believe you might have an update for us on the status of the petition that is now in the hands of a U.S. attorney? Yes, actually, I had, I had written, I followed up with uh, both uh, Judge Asfog and Seth Wood to inquire, what's, what are the next steps? I've never submitted a petition for a grand jury investigation before. What do, you know, what, what do I expect will happen? Will I be uh, informed as to whether there is one convened? Um, what, you know, what, what are the next steps? And I got a, a, an email back that indicated that it is uh, on their desk ready for review. So we'll We'll see what happens from there. So we know it's there and we know that it's in the queue for them to review this information. I wanna thank both of you for making that happen. And I wanna thank you, Dr. Ely, for all the work that you have done to lay the groundwork for us to use our voices in this way. Um, I'm sure that many people watching this would like to know what they can do to help with these efforts. Is there anything that you have, Senator Linthicum, that the people watching can do to help? 
the, probably the most important thing to do is realize that um, they they have this constitutional right um, and the uh, informed consent to their bodies, their choice, their uh, individual autonomy. These are all important issues. They've been endowed by their creator with these rights. They don't come from the color of law. They come from uh, from uh, our maker and it's important that people just get a handle on that um, because right now everybody's scared. They're scared of the OSHA. There's in, in our state, OSHA is the agency that will impact your business more than any other. At the federal level, uh, President Biden is going to use OSHA to implement his mandatory vaccine requirement on an additional 80 million individuals employed in private enterprise these things, as you described, are unconscionable. They're republic to uh, our human dignity, and people need to realize they're not alone. We think probably nearly 50% of the population in the U.S. is currently unvaxxed. That's a great sign because we have great uh, power in numbers, and we need to stick together. That's right. I agree. Sticking together has never been more important and giving each other permission to not comply with things that we know are wrong. And the forced medical intervention is unethical. It's wrong. And there is no scientific backing for population based recommendations. So we can stay strong in that. Senator Thatcher, anything um, that you have to say to our audience in ways that they can help? Well, I just want to mention real, um, just really quick that I there is a lot of power that people have and legislators have, and we don't even realize all of those things that are available to us. And it's really great to work as a team. It's really good to work with like-minded folks and that have these various backgrounds and talents to come up with these uh, different ways of approaching this. And I think we're really getting some momentum and synergy going. That's great. Thank you for the encouragement. Dr. Ely. Well, I, I want to echo excuse me, I want to echo what, what everybody's been saying. We have the power within us, you know, and I, I think the, the most powerful person that you're going to find on this uh, crisis is that person in the mirror, that we have to find our God-given courage to do what's right. You know, I, I was appalled when uh, Senator Linthicum uh, approached me and said, hey, I, I just put in a records request um, to get the cycle threshold values on PCR tests because I wanted to give it to your team so that we could analyze and see how many of them were false positives. This is an elected official, and he was denied that request by the Oregon Health Authority. What authority did they have to deny an elected official who's on a committee for health <laughs> and has served on a committee for health that kind of information? That, that was, that was uh, something. That was, uh, it's clear that there's something wrong. Um, Senator Thatcher came to me with uh, some questions and some really good information that she had unearthed on um, how the hospital bed counts in our state were being manipulated. And I said, well, that's, that's wrong. And I, I went in and, and helped validate all that. And what we found out was that they were reducing bed counts in the thousands um, to make, and make it look like we don't have hospitals uh, space. And that's what they're saying. The hospitals are being overrun. Well, yeah, if you reduce the bed counts by over 3,700 beds, you're gonna, you're gonna get overrun with cases from everything. It, it was just another evidence of data manipulation and failed, um, a, a, a failed opportunity for transparency. And I think what we can all agree on, it doesn't matter whether you're 
Democrat, whether you're independent, whether you're Republican, it doesn't matter any of that stuff. What matters is that we all believe in freedom. Freedom starts in our hearts. And I am a big historian like Senator uh, Linthicum, and I will not be a part of, uh, of a generation that surrenders our freedoms that were fought for and sacrificed for by our forefathers, by our foremothers, by our ancestors, by people who understood the significance of what it means to have rights over your body and over your life. I won't be a part of that generation that gives that up. And what I know that's going to happen is we're going to win, that justice and truth will prevail because it always does. But it's going to take the courage of everyone on something of this magnitude to make sure that truth prevails. And that's what we're doing is being hopefully that light um, in the darkness so other people can find us and say, you know what, I want to champion your cause as well. I think I have a U.S. attorney in my state that is interested in this. Will you come and talk to us and show us what you did? The answer is without a doubt, yes, we will. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. Thank you so much, Dr. H. And I want to echo that exactly, that we exist to empower you to go from wobbly to standing with strong legs so that we can move forward together. So if you're interested in what you heard today and you want to move this message forward in an even greater way than just simply signing the petition, which I hope you've already done by now, if not, go ahead and add your name there. But also, if you want to move this forward, go um, and email advocates at standforhealthfreedom.com and visit www.standforhealthfreedom.com to learn more about how you can stand your ground and can use this grand jury format to get into the hands of your own U.S. attorney. So our aim is to help support this effort with leaders across the United States because we need to hold public health agencies accountable and ensure that there is integrity restored to our data across the United States within our federal agencies and down into the states and local authorities because science and societal policies rely on accurate data. Um, we will not get reliable policies, reliable data until we demand it from, from us, from the people with the strength in our numbers. So be blessed and we look forward to hearing from you to get greater, to get involved in a greater way. That was the wonderful Leah and, and the panelists, um, Stand for Health Freedom. And I'm bringing on with me now, Amber Sims. Hi, Amber. Hi. Hi, nice Amber works cool. Hi, it's great to see you um, and hear you. Uh, Amber works closely with the individuals who are just um, on that panel and you know knows so many of the medical freedom and informed consent um, warriors, we shall call them. Um, and she's coming on to help us explain better. Now, um, help us understand the next step and, and why the call for, just explain that next step. Like if we were to get our attorney general, Washington state, ha, to do the same thing, explain what that means. What's going well, on? Well, I think what's so interesting is I, I have learned a lot about the grand jury process in the last, um, you know, 10 months uh, since getting to connect uh, with Dr. Henry Ely. 
um, because actually when his paper came out, uh, they tried as a research team to send it with a formal petition to all attorney generals across the U.S., um, as we heard in the video, and they got no response. Um, we are very blessed to have Senators Dennis Limpicum and Kim Thatcher um, take on the charge here in Oregon. Um, but actually, general uh, regular citizens can, can do the same. You don't have to be an elected official to file a formal petition. Uh, you don't have to have an attorney involved. You know, obviously, there's a lot of formal documents, but this is a template. So this template um, can be carried to other counties, other states, uh, with a request uh, for a, a full investigation. So it's it, besides adding your individual name to the request, these are just um, other full formal requests for it. And the, is that what you're saying? That that this one is might not be enough to get. We need to overwhelm them with requests because I. Well, I yeah, that's a good question. So Stand for Health Freedom was so gracious to put on um, a signature gathering process for the entire nation. And we have, you know, a few hundred thousand signatures that have been gathered, several thousand just in Oregon and in each state. Um, and so that shows that there's a growing voting block of, uh, you know, public individuals who would like a formal investigation into the CDC and into the FDA's, you know, clear willful misconduct um, acts, particularly starting with that, the first avalanche piece with the CDC, you know, changing death certificates um, and the recording of those just for COVID in March of 2020. Okay. Um, so we have that public gathering signature process, but then no, actually a, a small group of individuals in each state can uh, approach an AUSA or an attorney general with a formal petition. Um, Stand for Health Freedom has been uh, um, wonderful enough to offer individuals that approach them uh, the same kind of guidance that, that we took here in Oregon uh, with these are the documents, you know, here's how to, how to follow the process. Um, and I'm sure that, that uh, Leah Wilson and um, all of those involved will provide updates as we get updates. Okay. Um, but so th these are two, two wonderful constructs. We have this growing uh, volume count of people who would like to see a formal investigation uh, and then we have individuals who've actually filed that formal petition and received confirmation from um, the AUSA that was approached here in Oregon that they received it and it's on their desk. That's that's wonderful. Okay, so I can see some action in our future and I, I can see we're going to need to continue to help guide people to do this. I want to I want to bury the desk of wherever this goes at the federal level so that they know me, we mean business and we need to get, I love how it, they say at the end, I mean, without accurate data, you know, informed choice Washington, you know, for several years now, we have been saying public health policy must be based on actual science on, on product capability on true data and what is being absolutely ignored at the federal and state levels is product capability and the actual data. They just, if, if they can't argue with you, they just ignore it, you know? Right. And the fact that the federal government is absolutely silent, um, except for when pressed by the press on natural immunity. And even then they're playing ignorant to the most recent science, you know? Right. Um, that's what they do when when they know that telling the truth will compromise their goal and apparently their goal is 
something other than public health as we can see because yeah. it's not based on fact okay i'm rattling well, anyway no it's so because <laughs> i know you guys put out a great piece highlighting the fact that fauci's agency the nih showed with their own paper that if you already had covid that you were at a higher risk for an adverse event you know with the the covid jab yeah um if you naturally had covid already and so um, you know, it, it's just a really interesting time, you know, for a lot of people, I like to give the framework because I studied the media, you know, that's my background communications and media. Mm -hmm. Um, I just happened to get into the medical freedom space because of my own vaccine injury 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what's so interesting is this huge push right in the media and in all, uh, areas of society, it feels like, but with the media in particular, they're, they're completely complicit in the same willful misconduct that we see by these agencies. And I hope that we see a time when, when they're brought to, to justice. Um, but right now, Americans don't know that it is legal to propagandize the American public. A now, lot well, I, I've heard that said, but but it, I haven't heard the details. Now, tell me about some law passed that says it's legal to propagandize. So we had, after World War II, there was a law that passed um, that protected the American public from, uh, you know, propaganda. We saw in other countries and in, in other historical eras the use of propaganda uh, against citizens to, to get the citizens to be engaged in activities that, you know, they may not have otherwise been engaged with. Um, and so that law protected Americans for many, many decades until uh, 2012, the law was changed. Um, and I believe it's the Smith-Munt Act uh, that was kind of struck off the books. And uh, proponents of the, the change uh, tried to quiet critics by saying, but don't worry, there's no funding mechanism for it. So it happened on a Friday. The media didn't report on it, really. Um, and that law went into effect in 2013. Well, in 2016, um, a, another law passed creating a funding mechanism for it. So it has and, been, and what does it fund? I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't well, understand so what the, it funds. The funding of legal propaganda, right? Um, oh. So, you know, because originally the law was changed and they said, but don't worry, there's no funding for propaganda. But then three years later... They added uh, funding. 2016, they added the funding piece. And so it really provides a lot of uh, helpful, helpful um, context because you see how extreme things are in the media uh, and how much of a push this is. You know, I, I come from, you know, uh, Santa Barbara, California, where Earth Day was formed and this whole pre um, pretext of, you know, you don't want corporate profits in politics, you know, people over profits. That was like the framework for so much of my understanding in the world. And, and it's just so crazy, the level of corporate interest in this particular time in history. Uh, it's so pervasive on so many levels. And I don't think enough people truly understand that, you know, pharma outspends two to two to three um, uh, compared to like oil and gas and some of these other bigger uh, corporate lobbying efforts. So just some of those framework issues, I think people need to understand. Yeah. And the, the, the propaganda, the frightening part of it is how it is intensely studied. It's, it's social engineering. Mm -hmm. So we have taxpayer dollars and I don't know how much is spent, hundreds of millions at the very least with your top people understanding psychology and social engineering, saturating um, 
you know, major media, social media with messaging that make people not even be critical thinkers anymore. It's, right. it's really frightening. And to turn us against each other and not think critically. I mean, the very fact that there's, you know, they're setting different rules based on vaccination status. And in the same breath, they're saying, but if you, if you're vaccinated, you're at higher risk for the Delta variant. And so you need to get a booster. What? You know, what, what does that even mean? Why do you even think a, a booster would help if it makes you more susceptible to the Delta variant? Is this is this a new and they're using up the same product? It's not like they're telling you, you know, although today right now there's a couple of points that are important that I didn't get to in the first hour. So we've got the White House pushing for boosters. We've got politicians pushing for boosters. But today, the ACIP, who I also don't trust, but nevertheless said no to boosters. So what what's going on there? Well, they said no to boosters for the general healthy public, but they did say yes to boosters for 65 and up and yes to boosters for immunocompromised uh, younger individuals. So they said yes in some places and, and a very clear no in others. Um, but I, I think that's an indication that we're also winning. I think that the pressure that the public has has um, put on elected officials starting at the very ground level, I mean, here in Oregon and in the Pacific Northwest, we see this agenda push so hard to kick people out of jobs. The very healthcare workers that were our heroes and first responders that were our heroes are now down to zero. I mean, they're getting kicked out of their job. Uh, you know, they were uh, at risk for COVID the entire time before the vaccine was, was put on the market. Um, and now they're getting kicked out of their jobs um, and being told they're, they're a security risk. I mean, this is just ridiculous. And I don't know what you've seen here in Washington, but in Oregon, um, they're prepared to hire uh, visiting traveling nurses for $10,000 a week to fill some of the jobs that Oregonians are, are having to leave uh, or get booted out of, really, because we don't want anyone to quit, right? We want people to get fired. They have more legal standing if they get fired than if they just quit, right? Um, however, when you hear that, and, and, and some hospital systems are demanding that these traveling nurses definitely be vaccinated. Others are not, though. That's what we've um, learned. I'm connected with a lot of state legislators and you know people running for office and trying to stay on top of all these details. Is so, so you're saying in some places, hospital personnel were let go because of the refusal to get the shot, and they're replacing them at $10,000 a week with people who aren't being required to get the shot? In some instances, yep, they're not. Oh, good yep. grief. Yeah, so it's it's just they're trying to, it feels as if they're trying to take away the very infrastructure that um, we leaned on and we needed and we still need. Mm -hmm. um, but there are so many wonderful uh, county sheriffs and uh, firefighter departments and thousands and thousands of healthcare workers who are pushing back, you know, many of which who actually already went through COVID naturally. Um, you know, my, my family went through COVID in the winter of 2019, Mm -hmm. Right. So um, I don't know why Fauci's <laughs> NIH research showing that you're at higher risk for an adverse event isn't isn't promoted by the media, because that's really concerning. We don't want a, a weaker uh, population than we need to have. Do we during this time? Yeah, the, the major media is reluctant because of whatever pressure they're getting from the government and higher ups and from corporate whatever who's talking to the the decision makers of what gets on the air to say anything critical 
of what public health wants to happen, you know, even if it's costing lives, you know, there's there's going to be, I mean, the history books looking back at this insanity. Um, I I like I love how Dr. Henley ended his, you know, with hope and, and believe and and I, I too believe that faith that that um, that truth will win. Um, and, you know, I we just have to keep active and vocal and working together because, you know, and so when they look back on history of what the heck happened, mm -hmm. the learning lessons, you know, as a society, as a culture, we will never again be so easily fooled into giving up our freedoms. Well, what's so interesting to me as, you know, since the 15 years, since my own vaccine injury and all that I've learned, these things get layered on. And sometimes you can't connect the dots until it's too late because a policy over here, which doesn't feel like it has anything to do with one over here, has everything to do with that. You know, our governor put layers and layers of emergency control in, um, you know, or, or that, you know, went through um, over a number of years. We have... Mm -hmm. Uh, policies that maybe when they, you know, passed by us to, you know, two decades ago are, are really relevant right now. And so people need to be um, aware. I, I would have thought being married to someone from, from the country of Austria too, where World War II history is much more prevalent in, in the family um, awareness level. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't go back to a place in history where, you know, informed consent is, is something that some people don't um, believe we should have. Uh, right. I mean, well, you know, we're in a unique time in history too, where never before has propaganda, which you right. is, is legal, has been able to reach people uh, 24 hours a day, everywhere saturated. Right. And I hear the music playing this off. Amber, thank you so much for joining me today. Everybody go to standforhealthfreedom.com and um, is it .com or .org? Dot com. And I, I just want to say happy Constitution Day. September 17th is Constitution Day. And we are winning. There's so many yeah. good things to be hopeful about. Yeah, everybody get active, get involved, stand up, clasp hands, um, you know, just do what needs done. Everybody have a great weekend and we will send, see you next week. You're listening to an Informed Life Radio, 1150 AM KKNW. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, Inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at healthyimmunitynow.org. That's healthyimmunitynow.org. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. 
My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com.